Good evening. On behalf of the Lebri Poetry Festival, I'd like to welcome you to Lebri. And this is our first event of this wonderful festival in this wonderful town. The Forte Prize readings read by some of our finest poets. But before I introduce Chloe Garner, Artistic Director for the festival, I'd like to thank the Arts Council England, who are the main sponsors for this event, or for the whole festival, actually. So good luck, poets. Very good luck. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce Chloe Garner, um, who will explain the proceedings of this evening. So welcome, everybody. Thank you very, very much for coming. The Ledbury Forte Poetry Prize, it's a prize for second collections, and it's a biannual prize. So um, this year's prize is for collections published in 2017 and 18. And the aim of the prize, the reason why we wanted to have this prize, was to support and encourage um, mid-career poets. Uh, and there isn't another prize like, like this. And so it seems um, a really, really uh, good way of uh, bringing to the fore uh, collections um, that sometimes uh, might be in danger of being... Um, overlooked between prizes that focus either on uh, a first collection or um, established um, poet. So when we had the idea of doing the prize, we uh, had some really, really positive responses from publishers talking about how welcome this prize was. Uh, Tom Chivers at Penned in the Margins um, says that a poet's second collection can be dangerous, risk-taking, liberating and wildly ambitious. And um, it's uh, wonderful to have a prize that shines a spotlight on work that might otherwise fall down the gap between the excitement of the new and the confidence of the established. So uh, that's the, the purpose of the prize. And I'm really pleased that Sandeep Palmer, who won the first Ledbury Forte Poetry Prize, is here with us. And now I'm going to introduce our two judges. Um, and I'm really, really delighted that they're both here to talk to you a little bit about the process and the thinking that they went through as they were selecting the shortlist and the, the winner of the prize. So Lachlan McKinnon is the author of five collections of poems, including Small Hours, shortlisted for the Forward Prize for Poetry, and also works of criticism and biography. And his most recent collection is Doves, which was published by Faber in 2017. And Linda Gregerson is the author of six collections of poetry, most recently of Prodigal, New and Selected Poems. And among her earlier books, Magnetic North, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, um, Waterborne, which won the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. And um, she's also received many other um, awards and um, teaches at the University of Michigan. So it's really uh, wonderful to have both Lachlan and Linda here, and I'd like to welcome them to talk about the prize. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Even more fun hearing the judges, I guess, than hearing Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt. I'd first like to thank Olga Polizzi, the sponsor of this prize, who has very generously given it for her dedication to the arts, and her dedication in particular to the art we practice, which is in rather odd times at the moment, because it's so little reviewed now, so little attended to, it's very easy for second books in particular to disappear between the floorboards, and I think it's great to have a prize that doesn't let that happen. When the crate of books arrived at, at home, it was terrifically exciting. Um, 
All these poets, many of whom I'd heard of, some of whom I knew, some of whom I'd never heard of, uh, to read and enjoy, and to, to sniff the books and see if they were real. Um, and they were. I'm going to say just a few things that we noticed across the board, really. First of all, there was very little work that was badly formed and over-emotive, which was rather what I was fearing we'd have rather a lot of. If anything, there was a tendency to the beautifully formed and slightly under-moving. Um, that may be interesting in terms of what people are doing at the moment. There was absolutely nothing from what I would call the prim tendency, that is people stuck in a 60s aesthetic who live in a kind of poetic world of their virtuous own. And I was, I was sorry that they didn't come and compete with everybody else. It would have been nice to have a printout on the shortlist. Um, we... Well, Linda was a very good judge to work with. It was a very happy choice, I think, for the two of us, because we're both poets who've published on Renaissance literature, and so perhaps bring particular kinds of auditory response to poems, um, and have an interest, perhaps, in the ways in which poems move between the page and the dramatic. And, of course, that really comes later with Dunn, doesn't it? But it's, uh, nonetheless, it was a sort of late, later Renaissance writer, but nonetheless. Um, any dangers, I noticed. A lot of people seem to have been on creative writing courses, about which I am far more sceptical than my fellow judge. <laughs> um, I'm worried about the kind of coercive solidarity that they breed and about the, the dangerous of the unanimity of uh, worldview and politics and so on that putting a lot of young writers together might tend to produce. I, th I think writing is something you learn on your own in a library very painfully, but that makes me very dated. Um, I defer naturally to youth uh, in the endless quest to be done with it. We all seem to be seeing. Um, what did I look for? I looked for books I wanted to go back to, uh, books I wanted to reread. Um, oddly, the shortlist composition wasn't too difficult. It was painful in a way to, to say, no, that book's not. Well, one or two books you said, no. <laughs> uh, nice try, but uh, keep up the day job. But one, one or two, you, you thought. Um, yeah, it's a pity, you know, in a different year this book would have done better. But it was a very strong year. Um, and the six books that we shortlisted represented, to our delight, because we only thought about this subsequently, a range of different kinds of voice, different kinds of publisher, from the conglomerate to the pretty small new press. Um, and that pleased us very much. There was a slight tendency in these books to the pre-publication puff, usually by a friend of the author, and I think that's a, a cheat on the public. It's um, an American habit, American academics in particular, I would due respect, are very bad about this. Um, I discovered years ago, reviewing a lot of books from the southern United States, that everybody was praising everybody else's work in turn. It was like a kind of circus. Um, more entertaining their work, actually. Um, and... I would caution against that. My view is that unless something is from a printed source, it's not worth printing on a book as praise. 
Um, but that again may make me old-fashioned, but as I said, I wanted to go back to these six books. Once we'd got the shortlist, we had the first volumes of the poets to look at as well, to see where they'd come from and where they were going. Now, my view is that second books tend to be written rather more quickly than the first books, because naturally one has an appetite to get a second book out once you've got one. You want to say, yes, that was real, and here I come again. Um, and that was deeply interesting and deeply persuasive that these were all poets who were growing, developing, changing. It sounds patronising to say maturing, but I'm going to say it. Um, it's more than you might have said for my own second book, actually, so uh, I will say it, maturing. Um, and books that I wanted to read twice. As I said in my notice, there was one book which Linda said, what about this one? And I said... Uh, you know, you're right, <laughs> and I didn't put it on my list, but I do keep going back to it. And so we put that book on our shortlist. The final judging, which took place in Bloomsbury, of course, that's where all <laughs> English literary life in the end winds up, um, at a long dining table covered with Linda's notes, manuscripts, pens, um, signs of coffee having been taken and so forth, um, and provided, I hasten to add, um, and, um, uh, was painful. It was very difficult to decide in the end which of these books we wanted, uh, but I think it's safe to say that we were unanimous in the end in our decision. Um, this wasn't I think a case of either of us having browbeaten the other. We gave it a great deal of time, a great deal of care, um, a great deal of very careful, look at this, look at how this line works, look at how that's happening, listen to this. How does this sound? How does that work? What's happening there? Is this a real energy or rhetoric? Is this really what we want people to like? So the winner will have come through a rather testing process. But now I want to hand over to Linda, who's going to say a few words about the poets specifically, um, and end by saying that I do give hearty congratulations to the person who has won this. It really was an enormous privilege to be part of this um, process. The, it was, it was, I too felt a great deal of excitement when that box of books arrived. And um, I've been rereading and rereading, and it, on the train coming here today, rereading again these wonderful books. I warmly recommend all six of them. I believe they're all available for sale in the back, and I encourage you to buy each and every one and to read them. They will bring you much joy and, and more than joy. They'll, they'll bring you a, a, a kind of a very important anchoring uh, at a time when um, it's very easy for us to lose that. I'm going to say a few words about each book, um, but all at once, because lest... I, I, you have to watch me leaping up and down between poets. They're going to read, with one exception, in alphabetical order. 
um, by surname. <laughs> and uh, the exception is Danes Smith, who unfortunately is unable to be here today, but whom we have on video. And uh, so it's just for technological simplification that he's going to, that's going to be uh, shown first, and then the, uh, the, the alphabetical list of, 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 of poets reading. And I'm really, really looking forward to it. And all six of you, thank you, thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you write. Please, please keep doing it. We need your poems. So first, Danes Smith... Um, for the book Don't Call Us Dead. The publisher in the United States was Grey Wolf in the UK, Chateau and Windus. Do you know what it's like to live on land who loves you back? In the extended sequence that launches Don't Call Us Dead, Denise Smith imagines just such a land for the black boys who have died by violence in our time. The violence of vigilantism, of police brutality, of stigmatized poverty and illness, of despair. From the bitter landscape, this unblinking sequence manages to wrest a celebration of black lives, which I think is really, really remarkable. Um, two, A.K. Blakemore's Fondue, off-road books. Um, and uh, this book is, is a joy. It's uninhibited uncensored, it is dazzling in its varieties. And this will sound a little geeky, but this is, it, that's not what these poems are. Dazzling in its varieties of rhetorical address, just sort of angle of attack. Um, fondue, I feel reading it as though it's reinvented the lyric from scratch. Blakemore is a magician of shimmering concision, fierce intellect, and disarming juxtapositions. She dares to us to be joyful and at risk. And I'm going to, from each of these, I, I began with a little passage from, from Denez's book, and I'm going to give you just a sampling, a couple of phrases from each of the others so you get it in your ear. Here's from um, A.K. Blakemore's Fondue. England, and just enough blue sky to make a noose. Okay. <laughs> Three. Adam O'Reardon, a herring famine, Chateau and Windus notable for their breadth of compassion and depth of historical imagination. The fine lyrics in A Herring Famine are, um, encompass the complex intertwinings of family, village, ecosystem, way of life. And they are emphatically of our present moment, which of course includes that historical awareness. O'Reardon is a master of cadence and immediacy, his uses of musical echo are at once consolatory and, here's the magic, subtly unsettling. Quote, A man stood a whole day watching rain as if it were the question that answered all others. David Tate, the AQI, which I confessed to him earlier today. Uh, Lachlan and I kept referring to as the Aki. We weren't sure how it was supposed to be pronounced. Smith Doorstop is the publisher. The AQI, and if you don't know it, um, if you are as baffled or, or, or even as little bit baffled as we were, um, is the Air Quality Index. And it st is at once a measure 
as this book makes, these wonderful poems make clear, of our depredations and our dependency. Phenomena that David Tate meticulously traces through his wide-ranging new collection of poems. There's a suite of poems set in China from which, thank you, David, he has come to us for the sake of this festival. Um, a suite of poems set in China sets the imminent unlivability of our planet in stark relief, an elegiac sequence to the victims of a hate crime in Orlando forges a powerful tribute to love. And here's a just small snippet from his work. A week of autumn snow, and today the sun, the buildings fizzy with melting, the beggar draping his sheets over the bank's homeless spike. Rory Waterman, Sarajevo Roses, Carcanet. Very, very few poets can bring to the lives of others the same devout attention we tend to bestow upon ourselves. Rory Waterman is just such a poet. It's deeply impressive. Whether their site of meditation is an abandoned colliery or a much-marketed urban vista, something on the tourist trail. The exquisite lyrics of Sarajevo Roses are imbued with mindfulness. And there, I was very impressed, we were both with the suppleness of poetic line in these poems. They're matched by suppleness of spirit. And here's a small snippet. Lichens curled in rare sun eat the words for no one on an open book of stone. And sixth, James Womack on Trust, a Book of Lies, Carcanet. True to its title, On Trust, a Book of Lies explores the metamorphic landscapes of shifting allegiances and unstable epistemologies. Writing a cunning jazz line in one poem, and a very flexible passage of lyric prose in the next. Womack matches limberness of method to his ambitious subject, and it really is deeply impressive to see and unsettling to see how this is captured. These shifting instabilities of character, circumstance, and faith. And here's a snippet. And remember what I said about the metamorphic. He saw a leaf fall, dark against the dark sky, and the black branches, and then decide it was a bird and perch above his head. Please help me welcome and congratulate all six of our poets. Dear white America, I've left Earth in search of darker planets, a solar system that revolves too near a black hole. I've left in search of a new God. I do not trust the God you have given us. My grandmother's hallelujah is only outdone by the fear she nurses each time the blood-fat summer swallows another child who's to sing 
in the choir. Take your God back. Though his songs are beautiful, his miracles are inconsistent. I want the faith of Lazarus for Wanisha. I want Chucky, Bo, Mo, Sean, Trayvon, Janila risen three days after their entombing. Their ghost re-gifted flesh and blood. Their flesh and blood re-gifted their children. I've left Earth. I am equal parts sick of your go back to Africa's as I am your I just don't see races. Neither did the poplar tree. We did not build your boats, though we did leave a trail of kin to guide us home. We did not build your prisons, though we did and we filled them too. We did not ask to be part of your America, though are we not America? Her bones brittle, dress ripped, dragging her dead child through Oakland. I am sick of standing this ground. I will not call your reckless the law. Each night I count my brothers and in the morning when some don't survive to be counted I count the holes they leave. Your master magic trick America. Now he's breathing. Now he don't. Abracadaver. White bread voodoo. This sorcery you claim not to practice. Hand my cousin a pistol to do your work. I tried white folks. I tried to love y'all, but you spent my brother's funeral making plans for brunch, talking too loud next to his bones. You took one look at the river plump with the body of girl after boy after sweet, sweet child and asked, why does it always have to be about race? Because you made it that way. Because you put an asterisk next to my sister's gorgeous face. Call her pretty for a black girl because black girls go missing without a whisper of way. Because there are no amber alerts for amber-skinned girls Because Jordan boomed and Emmett whistled And Huey P spoke it and Martin preached it Because black boys have always been too loud to live Because it's taken my father's time My mother's time My uncle's time My aunt's time My grandma's time My grandpa's time My niece's time My nephew's time How much time do you want? For this progress, I've left Earth, and I won't stop until I find a place where my kin can be safe. Until black people ain't but people, the same color as the good, wet Earth. Until that means something. Until then, I bid you well. I bid you war. I bid you our lives to gamble with no more. I've left Earth, and I am touching everything. You beg those telescopes to show you. I am giving the stars their right names. And this new life, this new history, you cannot see or touch or study or steal or ship or whip or hang or burn or cut or rape or redline or hang or shoot or jail or shoot or jail or shoot or jail or shoot or jail or shoot or shoot or shoot or shoot or ruin no this if only this one life is ours Thank you. Um, my sex. Yeah. 
Enter breakfast truck, the blue bottles performing sequies to marbled bacon. Enter girl with manacles, enter so damn adorable, he likes small fuck doll girl who looks plaintively at porcelain salt and pepper shakers shaped like kittens sleeping, intertwined. Enter desolation beside a pinstripe spider plant, enter knowing how to dress your pear shape, history, history, and after you follow with a bucket and mop or words to that effect. Enter girl who applies the cooling gel, enter the tape modern to see how your consumers, I am here but nothing, which please you cannot photograph. Like when I found out there was a fetish for everything, sexuality seemed like a great leveller. Enter nothing too weird to enter, biking, amused, savage, tender repetitions of toilet cubicle graffiti. Enter fathers in the clouds, 99. Enter my sex, like act, not gender, and other songs that make me cry. My sex, sometimes ballet shoes. Both the stones in the pockets of my coat and the welcoming cold river. Prelude. I watched a porn in which a woman pushed her lips to the fractal stream of a hosepipe aimed at a car window. The man with the hosepipe was wearing overalls beside a privet line of rose bushes, particolored by the spray, a striped umbrella, a jug of pale lemonade. It seemed so actual, the scene was poignant, and then I wondered where you were. Scorpion. I want you like a scorpion down my shirt, struggling through life toward me only, a scorpion and a white mouse caught in human hair. If you were prepared to live cheaply, I might show you alternate Luca. In a friendly way, I will get drunk and call you a sick fuck. Say we needn't leave late if you're tired. I see you, watching, as I shake the petals from my damp umbrella, like anyone is looking at my shoes. Uh, do a mythology poem. I see, I have range. Perseus. <clears throat> The body, taken whole, he pulled into the surf like a dismembered leg, her breast still lovely, her green seahawk wings, Ophidian cutlery. He and the head would wake at the same time with the same infection, a drop falling from the slack mouth like the liquid sometimes wept from the center of a flower. Where it fell on his boots, it melted through the leather. Even covered or tied in a sack, it's bad carrying a thing like that. He flew above a burning orchard, kept seeing birds eating other birds. Not that one. Same, I marked this all out very professionally in the pub before I came. Um, leather. Intentions seemed so concrete by the estuary. Next to the water, a dark flesh like leather. Taking deep maltworks lotus smell, they shit along the green sward, all shameless white scars of neck. There, like if Tom of Finland had made swans. Mauve tails for tongues, primed to cusp a girlhood in ex-cathedra feather. Samaritans. 
Falling in love with the boy dragging old bits of wood and broken pallets through the green adolescent limbs of wheat, liking how he lit fires, must be constantly in the presence of fire and my readiness to scream when he was around, to test that space within. Later, I was referred to a therapist and walked to the clinic after school, slow and a little ashamed of my mannish shoes. I told the boy I loved, a new boy, that contemplating suicide is something all imaginative people do, just as all desire is pathological. You are not your body, but you are, and once it's gone, it's gone. And I never saw the point in talking, when truth is just a sharp thing you stand on in the night with bare feet, unrepeatable, as a kiss you said was forced, you never wanted. Smokers' children. I feel like Jack the Ripper might, hunted, yet wearisomely smug. Resigned, I will not live to see happy endings for television's lesbians. Under the eaves of a suburban cafe, making friends with a probable racist who shares my lighter and disgust at the necrotic rain. I don't know why they chose such a pretty corpse for the packaging. 23, a stroke maybe, and a smile that says he'd do it all again. 06. I legitimately want to hear all about the places you felt like you met God, that freak out summer sleeping in the cupboard where they kept the pellet gun, benzene splinter, abject upon first hearing a good shot at 16, knocking blocks off a fence post in denim cutoffs, a struck bell. It seems like everyone who came and went, left something, as if this was a game show. I wish I could be sure of anything. I wish I could tell you you'll find nothing but encouragement, no matter what dumb shit you want to do. Um, my last poem, uh, Bo. I have not walked along the Seine, just by the wharf between a sun hat and a body disinterested, finally mature. After I fell in love, his beauty was given to me like the most destructive secret, and there was never any feeling of having turned a corner. Will the world be so scorched and conducive to a rarefied survivalism that they won't understand a life so unsolid, so centered on void and plastic, how I tidy away the empty blister pack of his regular bromides, oh how I feel like God, and endlessly... Will there still be waterside places people go to die happy? Will they say I was a lonely seer, a savant, a lover of men? Thank you. Crossing the meadow. You crossed the meadow once before, alone that time. At night, the ring road in the distance gathering voice. The sleeping ponies thin by winter, still as standing stones. The clouds of breath as you moved among the broken circle they had formed. I came with you in early spring, before the buttercups, bird's foot trefoil, white clover, yarrow, across the mudflats, a goose receding into boggy underfoot. Bloody gristle and yellowed bone, the feather line of its splayed wing open to the heavens. Looking back across the common to earth and plowed for millennia, 
where thousands and thousands of bird tracks scored the mud and glistered in the sun that was dropping over Wolvercott. And it's so wonderful to be back here and to be back in Ledbury. I first came here um, to read after the Eric Gregory Award, it must have been 2008 or 2009, um, and to return for this, um, to be part of this, along with my fellow shortlisted poets, is just absolutely fantastic and has been so um, invigorating and reviving for my practice as a poet. It's been really, um, a really powerful thing for me. Um, and uh, there are lots, it, it, this, the second, my second collection didn't really come out as I'd imagined it to come out. I felt it was sort of starker and um, emptier and, and not the book I'd imagined writing next after my, my first book of poems in the flesh. Um, there are lots of marriages and weddings in this book in different places, some of which I'm within and some of which I'm not within or without, outside of. Um, but they sort of recur, they're one of those kind of things that's in this. And at the centre of the, of the book is, a, is a, um, a set of poems called Six Scenes from a Marriage. And I'm just going to read a couple of those now. Six Scenes from a Marriage. Tia my love is alone on the summer island of her childhood. A girl leaning against a bicycle on a treeless hill at dusk. I want to speak to her then, not now, between Hainish and Sandeg and all the places I've never been. Pausing to watch the waves, the white wall of the Kalmak shrinking in the distance. I want to write my way back into this love, to meet her newly resident in silence in long hours of light, alone with the prayers and sandwich pastes of her aged aunt, to come to her softly as rain or wind moving through the body. Maccabay. Fierce wind on the white sands and the oyster blue last light, a house crouched on the headland and you striding out hands deep in your pockets. I loved you then by all the power and simple rage of the moiling, lead-lined sea, boggy hollow and the rushing sands, and your wish to be alone, however vast already was your aloneness. Through spinning drifts and snaking waves, the bitter cold at our faces, roar when we returned to the car, and the courtesy light clicked on, and we saw ourselves, what we'd become. I'm writing this to your absence, to those casual, vast gulfs, to the distances which open up between us, those rifts, to the places in which I'm unable to reach you, or when I confound myself and I burn with anger. I'm remembering that walk in the rain and the early dark, 30 yards or so to the kirk, the tinsel freshly hung for the Christmas service, and us quickly married. A tree had fallen at the mouth of the glen. They sawed it open, waved us through, defy us by our distances again. And I just want to finish with um, a couple of new poems, um, which this shortlisting um, can take credit for getting me going again with in a big way. So I'm really thankful for that, and I'm sort of well into <coughs> A third collection, which is much more what I thought my second collection would be like, so I got that in the end. Um, I became a dad last May, um, and so there are lots of 
poems about my son in there. And these are just two short ones uh, for Gabriel and for my wife Hannah, who both can't be here tonight. Neutero. And when you were a poppy seed, we lay awake to a dog's bark three fields away, wind in the rotten corn. And when you were an apple seed, your mother floated in a madrigada scent of uncollected trash in Bougainvillea. And when you were a pomegranate, fatal, they said to you, if ingested. The midwife encouraged my hand to a cool swell, to that flutter, your first sudden shifting like a trapped bird, known now to the unknown world. Summer migrants. Our first time alone outside together, I thought of life returning to these islands. Cuckoos from the swamp forests of the Congo, wheat ears skimming over endless Sahara. Silvery moths, wide-mouthed basking sharks. And you, my love, from where had you come? That cluttered room in the sure start center, your heartbeat from the electrocardiogram a white horse racing across wet sand. Thank you. I'm not going to drink it now. <laughs> Lovely. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm going to read um, four or five poems, um, probably depending on how bored you look after the third poem. Um, it's lovely to be here. It's a, a real honour to be on the, um, the shortlist with such wonderful poets. Um, I live over in China. Uh, I live in Shanghai. Um, so most of the poems that I've written in this collection, the, the Aki, um, oh, the AQI, sorry, <laughs> um, are about that. Um, um, and I, I, I've lived there for six and a half years now, and I thought, I'll, I'll come to Ledbury and I'll just read the poems about China. Um, but one of the great joys of China is that you can be on a train, and if you don't speak Chinese very well, like I don't, um, you don't understand the absolute nonsense that people are saying. And one of the, one of the great sadnesses of the modern world in English is that people talk a load of crap. And on the way here today, I heard a lot of people on the train, and there was some sort of uh, festival near here they were going to called El Dorado, and a group of um, stag men were sort of having that conversation, like, well, I don't know why there's gay pride now. Like, we've given everything they want. They can get married and everything. Um, <laughs> so I thought I'd read this. Chechnya. You ask me why I fight, and I say it comes from ignorance. I don't know what it's like to love unconditionally or to forgive without bearing grudges. You can ask any of my exes, and they'll agree that I remember transgressions like a wronged nation. And if you ask them to describe me, you learn that I'm a great maker of incomplete lists, that I'm irrationally fearful of flying, and that most days I prefer spending three hours alone. There are many things I pretend to know that I don't, and many things I do not even slightly understand. 
One of those things recently happened in Chechnya. A 17-year-old was thrown from a ninth-floor balcony by his family for being gay. There are many things about this I cannot know. The impact of the body, how he split open upon impact, the pattern he made on the pavement, the things that must have skittered through his mind while falling nine floors, his terror, the strength of his need to love in such a place, the depth of his fear. Then there's his family, also unknowable. The uncle, who saw fit to leave his own home, to march across the small city, to climb nine flights of stairs, or to wait for an elevator to take him to the door of his brother or sister. The passion and persuasiveness of a speech that made his brother or sister decide to murder their son. I cannot understand how someone could open the door and then the next door to the balcony could lift their son like a struggling, begging piece of luggage and hurl him out to the wide sky. I've known a little of hatred, but I can't figure this out. This hate that rounds up men and takes them to camps, that beats and breaks and kills, that is unreported and uninterrupted, that brags it will eradicate gays by June. I'd like to think that his murderers felt guilt, that the mother fell to her wordless knees, that the father screamed, what have I done? That he had to be tackled by the uncle to not leap after his son. I'd like to think that this is what happened, because this is my understanding of the human world. But in reality, they probably didn't do these things. I cannot know what ran through their minds. What do their neighbours think of them? Are they seen as good citizens of Chechnya? Here's one more thing I pretend to know. That most people are good. That we can live in a society that is mostly accepting. That we can marry and adopt and love but there's also this deeper, creeping knowledge that some would have us crushed, that out there are millions who would wish us dead. This is why I fight. And the AQI refers to the air quality index. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things that living in China that's perhaps more ch challenging and more visible is the effect that air pollution has on the, the wider world and living in big cities um, such as Beijing or Shanghai is more visible. So um, I found myself, um, similar to Adam, I suppose, writing the book I didn't really expect to be writing. I, if you'd have said, David, your second book will be about air pollution, I'd have said, <laughs> no, but here we are. Um, so, the air. A text from the embassy. The air today will not be good. If possible, I should stay indoors. If possible, I should wear a mask. Today is my day off. I sit and watch as the air rolls in. The skyscrapers lose their sure angles. The skyscrapers could almost be whales. I think of Ahab hurling his pipe. The air buffets against my window. It is colder inside than outside. The air pants against the glass. Handprints begin to appear. Now it's just me. 
The air mimics the voices of traffic and hawkers. The traffic and hawkers are drenched in the air. The walls are starting to sweat. Um, one of the cuter um, explanations for air pollution that I heard was a mother telling her daughter that the reason why there was so much air pollution that day is that there was a dragon near the city. Um, it's great, isn't it? It's wonderful. Um, let's hope the dragons stay away from England a little while longer, but uh, they're coming. Three Dragon Day. Forget the science of particulate matter. Air pollution comes from dragons. On a blue day, the dragons are far from the city. On a day like today, the air scratches and growls. Imagine them out there, wrapped around skyscrapers, shrieking to each other through blast furnace throats. Their scales buckled steel, eyes deep as mine shafts, grey wings rippling with varicose veins. Putting on a face mask, a five-year-old girl looks out at a city made vague as Monet's London. Today is a three-dragon day, she says, then heads out onto the street towards the crossing and is gone. Boredom check. Okay, two more. Two more poems. Why that building is red. Um, I work for um, a string of English centres and part of my job is to travel between different cities and to travel between different centres. Um, and this, um, this poem was pretty much gifted to me by a conversation I had by the local staff member who was showing me around and talking about Shenzhen. Does anybody know about Shenzhen? Keep it that way, but I'll, I'll tell you a little. Um, it's a massive city across the border from Hong Kong. Um, 15 million people living there. Uh, used to be really small. Is the symbol of new China and the development. It's also the hub of the technological development of China, Huawei, the mobile phones, etc. Okay? Why that building is red. Driving between centres in Shenzhen, my colleague points out the sites. You see that building? That is where we are going. It took them just three days to build each floor, which is why we say at Shenzhen speed. We're driving down the main road in her silver car, and I'm flicking through the notes of a class I'll teach later on brainstorming ideas for a phone app. And this place here, she gestures, flailing an arm. This is the best place in town for getting copies. Shenzhen's most renowned forgerers work here. We stop at some lights by a large red building. It looks odd set against the chrome high-rises. Oh, and this building, this red one, this is where people go if they need to be killed. I look at it more closely. There are two soldiers lounging at the entrance, a red banner flapping in the breeze. Of course, that doesn't happen as much anymore, just mainly in the old times. The building is red to warn us against ghosts. Ghosts are unlucky for business. The lights change, and we leave it behind. It lessens to the size of a brick and then a smudge. And here, she says, slowing the car, here is our Starbucks. All right, last poem. Weirdest situation or experience I've ever had um, in uh, Guangzhou when I lived there. 
um, was wandering near the centre on a lunch break near where I lived. And the centre where I worked was near lots of um, travel agents. And I'm from Lancaster, um, not the most idyllic. It's a nice town, but it, it, it is not, I don't know, Falaraki or somewhere, somewhere marvellous. And um, there was like a guided tour to Lancaster and the Lake District, and the manager was, come, come in, see Lancaster. Um, so I wrote this, um, possibly slightly plagiarising a better-known poem, um, which I'm sure you'll recognise. Guangzhou Daffodils. <laughs> and thank you all for listening. It's been marvellous to be here. And thanks uh, very much for all that. Guangzhou Daffodils. I wandered lonely on my way to One Link Walk in Tianhe, past Hua Shalu and Dongfeng Bay, and wondered briefly how you were. I got into the shiny lift and clocked on quickly for my shift. I nipped out during that lunchtime and walked among the tall skyscrapers that stretch in their unending lines and paused at the window of a travel agent's, the Lake District, the rolling hills, the graves, the golden daffodils. The manager saw me standing there and waved me in and sat me down. I couldn't help but sit and stare as the agent sold me my hometown. Five minutes in, I felt quite sure and duly signed up for the tour. For often sitting at my desk in a vacant or a pensive mood, I need the snow, the hills, the risk of falling, shortbread solitude. I'm all signed up. I'm on my way. My plane is lifting through the grey. Thank you. So yeah, it's a great honour, great honour to be here in this company. Um, I'm going to begin with two poems. There are three poems in the book set in the North Nottinghamshire coalfield, which is quite close to where I live now, um, and I'm going to read two of them. This one's called Driving Through the Pit Town, and at the bottom of the poem it's dated 2013. Driving Through the Pit Town. There's not much round here now, you say. Just huddled brick or pebble dash terraces and tiny near builds where the pit heads were. Bare hills fly up beyond the town you left with clasps of scree, caps of sodden, sudden green pitched above the neat slate pitches. But your eyes stay on the road. The side streets jut left and right, so many of them like ribs. You jab a finger. We lived up top of that one. Then, surprise, a pale sun picks her to slit in the paper sky. Yellow slaps down momently and slides along the valley, and the half a pit wheel trenched in the roundabout shimmers red as flesh. We won't stop here, and most of the shops, kebab land, USA nails, Milan fashions, are shut or boarded anyway. The four lads pincering fags outside the co-op, gobbing and shoving, repulsed for what they are. It's no use knowing better, more, you say. And in blue spray paint, the back of the village sign cries ding-dong 
like we're waiting at a door. This poem's called June Morning Erewash Canal. Sorry, June Morning Erewash Canal. The collieries a country park. His old man shunted coal. This young dad teaches his lad to fish at a bug-flecked winding hole, while opposite, a brace of fish repeats between the reeds. Like this, he bellows, hands on shoulders, pulling the kid around, who grimaces and squares his shoulders, wanting the world to know he knows. May petals file across in fuddles of sun-dried snow. Unlike Adam, I haven't had a child. Um, no, I mean, you haven't either, have you, presumably? But, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, but not personally, you know. But. <laughs> um, and I, I probably won't. This poem's called Family. Um, though I think it's a wonderful thing to do, too. Family. Aggregate din from cutlery. Coffee machines and resolute voices thickens the sweetened air in the Eden Project's visitor centre cafe. A red-mopped toddler slaps her Looney Tunes spork across the high chair tabletop and stubs her stub of hand, setting off the usual siren of anguish. Child, the world is not as anyone expects. My wife and I sit several tables away as far as we can, and grimace as mummy lifts with studied grace the utensil her progeny clutches, bringing on a fresher growl of grief. You won't remember suffering here, or all that's yet to come throughout this erstwhile clay pit of stinky shrubs and leaf-dense biomes skulking the valley beyond. Two caterpillars riddled with human mites where ice creams wait, a bamboo xylophone waits, and I think, what could our life be with someone else in it? Then you would be our life. The child shrieks on, still hoping for all to come right. And now a waitress totters across, all baby smiles and hair buns shining on her crown and limbs and lashes two-thirds my age and clears their plates and smiles, which stuns the infant who softens into a stare head bobbling. My wife chisels her rock cake with a knife, leaves me the bigger half, and I set to, scrolling postcards to my parents. An only child must remember more. Each while, my mother hopes for news. Each while, my father elsewhere hopes for news. Will none of us say the things we've thought until there isn't time? I'll harden my thought. We are too many. We haven't seen enough. I don't believe that last line at all, but also I do. <laughs> so this poem's called Ave Maria, and it's set in... Um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Balearic Island, the biggest one. Mallorca. But not in Shagalof or anywhere like that, but in, like, in a in the mountains. Ave Maria. So I pushed like an eager pilgrim up to the shrine 
up switchbacks of calcareous rock, alternately baked and shaded by the olives and caribs, that rock. Then cobbles spread near the summit, a rust lidded well hiding in a corner. And where they flattened out, it waited with its dark door, flat white walls, a wave of brown tiled roof, a split rose window. Bells clanked brightly down in the shadowed town where cars pressed to and fro on the verge of silence. A butterfly bounced across. A plane hit a mountain but slid out the other side like thread through a needle. Forcing the handle made the shrine door screech and the bus stop-sized room seemed too dark. But there they were, ready to give their blessings for my offerings. Their unfitted crowns, dull and preposterous, toppling permanently, left and right. The slit-gapped fingers of the infant, reaching like a lost conductor, fashioned with all the care grim duty, if not talent, could bestow seven hundred quiet years ago. Their eyes plump, lips quarter smiling, even the child's knowing more than you, including you and a space in the perspex screen to slip my hand through and sense love bursting fresh from a cold beige foot. I'm going to read two more. This one's called uh, Love in a Life. I've got something to admit with this one. um, I couldn't find an epigraph and I wanted one for the so how the poem works, so I just made it up. Um, and no one ever asked, so it was fine. Gabriel Arroco, who I invented in the book called Los Bibliophilos, I'm not sure my Spanish pronunciation is very good, said, ah, but they had each other. <laughs> <coughs> Love in a life. That's a completely original title as well. The old suit reading the telegraph for his wife in the quiet coach of our train to Paddington uncrosses his legs, cracks me with a toe, raises the sorry hands and carries on steadily as before. And when he says so, she leads him down the aisle and out of my life. He hulks an alloy trolley case from the rack, then holds her pallid hand. The engine goes slack and others rise, putting him out of sight. This train shunts off the train. I stretch, lean back, and on we slide through white and yellow lights. Then lights stretch down a river, then near black. So the book ends with um, a short sequence um, about an invented character called Dr. Bob Pintle, who is... uh, He's kind of a reprehensible man in a reprehensible world, I suppose. Is anyone working in university here? <laughs> okay. Um, he's definitely not me, but um, I've identified him in colleagues and others. Um, he, he's called Dr. Bob Pintle. He doesn't. He's a, he's a lecturer in creativity. Um, he's been promoted actually since this book, but. Um, and, and, uh, and he works at the fictional Peterborough University though I found out recently that Peterborough University soon won't be fictional and um, he's probably going to have to find a new institution Ledbury University um, <clears throat> so it's a day in the life and this poem is the, uh, the, the final instalment it's called 4pm, the office hours 
The second year essay, sorry, start again. Second year essay tutorial slots, A to H. And next, Sophie Cage. But how can I make it more better, she says, rutting her brow in effort and rage. The Hello Kitty rubber impaled on her pencil gulps eagerly, bobbing above the page as she jots bubble-lettered, misspelled iterations of his battle to seem at once honest and sage. Though empathy is not his strength, Pintle knows a brute in paths when he sees one. This is his tenth year at PU, and tomorrow's task, now havocing him, is his annual review. What have you done? What will you do? How many items did you publish this year, but no one asking what they are? Is your guarantee not to strike with HR? He talks on at Sophie, but isn't quite here, and down in the quad some students clutch hands or frown at the remains of the day, and each represents 40 grand to the bastards who set Pintle's pay. Thank you. Autobiography. Oh, none of this ever happened. But one feels so grown up composing herself out of details not entirely merit-worthy. The book's called On Trust, A Book of Lies, and that poem seems to make certain things quite clear. But some of the poems are about um, a love affair, and um, my wife read them and she said, but, you know, people read this book and think you've had a love affair. And I said, well, no, 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 I'll just tell them this. I haven't. I'll tell them it's all made up. She said, you can't tell everyone who's read your book you know, that you haven't. I said, you don't know the poetry or do so many things. You know, I can probably, this is fairly easy, so, you know. Uh, they're poems, they're made up, feigning. That kiss. Nobody noticed, except the two who were meant to notice, as the rapid ritual greeting, left cheek, right cheek, was prolonged ever so, ever so slightly, and one breathed in close on the curve of the other's jaw. This one's called Glass Half Dark. How did they meet? By chance, like everyone. What were they called? Why should you care? But one morning, round about midnight, she nudged him awake and said, Are you asleep? Come upstairs, the sea's like a mirror. He grumbled a little, but got dressed and followed. Back then, the whole world was mildly erotic when he looked at it. He needed to see it through her. From upstairs, indeed, the sea was like a mirror, though he didn't really want to look at the sea. Where were they coming from? Somewhere close. Where were they going? Whoever knows that. More scenes from recumbent life. He sits in bed with his fig-leaf notebook. She wanders round the room, naked, deadheading pot plants. 
What are you doing? she asks. Trying to sketch you, he replies. She comes over, interested, and peers at the page, and then, with a shrug, but these are just words. The coin falls on its edge if it falls at all. Long afterwards, they woke him again and say, hey, come out on the roof, the sea's amazing. He followed before he remembered, and the sea was indeed like a mirror. He looked into it and saw nothing look back. There's quite a lot of um, translation in this book. Um, this is a poem by, translated from the Russian by a Russian poet, Mariana Gedya. It's called Error. The title Error is in English in the original. To me, it will not be granted to take shelter within your two doors that open like wings in this haughty building with no awnings and no annexes. I key in the code which used to be my name, and it replies, error. And I say, yes, I got it wrong, I got it wrong. But it repeats, error. And I say, yes, I made a mistake, I made a mistake, and the only door that I could knock at was your door, but it says, error. And as for me, what is left to me now? To wait, to stick like a shadow to some approaching homeowner or guest and hope that he does not ask, where are you going? Who are you going to see? What really is it that you need? And I cannot lie and say that I live here, because by my greasy clothes, by my broken nails, by my puffy face, a drunken face down to the very skull, by all these it is clear to anyone that I do not live anywhere, not here, not anywhere else. Within your two doors like wings folded after flight, under your two hundred eyes which burn for several hours and then die out as the night goes on, this building where I once could stay, the building where there were more doors than doorways, because each doorway held two or three doors. The iron door, the wooden door, the glass door, the tin door, the imagined door, the invisible door. And some of them had an eye that looked outwards, and some of them had an eye that looked inwards, and some were locked from the outside, and some of them were not locked at all. And for others it was as though their keys had been lost, and some had never had keys, because they recognised people by their face or by their fingerprints. And all the same, I never managed to penetrate far enough and I raged and I laughed and I hurt, but I could never believe that they would stand so completely outside, right in the street, with greasy clothes, with broken nails, with a head dull and light as a baseball bat, because there is nothing for it now than to beat, beat, beat against this door, which is as closed as the eye of a man asleep, closed as the grave, closed as a pair of wings, as the cataclysm, as the gates of kings, as the credit card I used to take out and misspend all my money, Closed as the first syllable of the word error, and closed as the last syllable of the word error. This is a poem related to that. And then you ask, how can this page you translate be about you? Aren't another's words truly prophylactic, even when lifted into your own words? But, inference objection, your own words, are they always yours or always you? When I see the eyes I've tattooed on my own eyes, though someone else had to say even that first. And this is the last one. I kiss you once and say I love you twice. Once in the large room and once by the door that sticks and needs to be argued open and shut. Now I've bullied it open and I pause at the threshold 
pushing back the cats with my boots and my bag. And I love you, I call down the hall to the large room. And although you don't call back, I love you, you do say, bye, casually, just as you'd offered your cheek to be kissed. And I look down the corridor, and though I can't see you, I know you are there, and I think, that's enough. And I'm in the world, and you are there in the warm, and there's much more between us than this reluctant door. Thank you. is going to make the announcement, but um, I hope you can see why it was such a difficult choice with these six brilliant poets. And please, let's have a show of hands for, um, or rather bringing hands together, a, a, an auditory show of hands um, for all six of them. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, clearly the point of this event is that you're supposed to buy all six books and then you can decide for yourselves um, who, who you would have awarded the prize to. So that's the point. Please do buy books and read all these wonderful poets. Um, so, But it is my um, job to announce who the winner is and so um, I'm um, going to announce that A.K. Blakemore has won with fondue. So please come up... I know I'd be a bit of a dickhead if I did think that was going to happen, but I really didn't. And <laughs> uh, um, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, it's a life-changing <laughs> amount of money um, for me uh, right now. Um, uh, and I would, I suppose, thank you most importantly um, to Martha and Hannah, my editors of Offered Road Books. Offered Road are literally a two-woman operation, um, and all they've managed to achieve in like you know, a couple of years is astonishing. Um, I don't know how Martha does what she does, uh, but it would be a very different book without Martha and Hannah. Um, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> I, I guess that's it. And um, my dad and uh, my partner, Ed, who um, cooks and uh, cleans out the cat litter tray so I can work when I get home from my office job. Um, yeah, uh, Golem. Where my glasses? <laughs> yeah, can't read. She suddenly realised. <clears throat> Golem. You tell them not to fuck with you, but they'll fuck with you anyway. Maybe even fuck you if they can, to give you a real reason to steep your ear in breath. They used to fashion some apology out of a pro professed attraction to difficult women. Cleopatra was a cunt for going quietly, carried out by eunuchs to feel the soft rain on her skin. Go down to the river and make a man with your bare, beautiful hands and knowledge of sacred geometry. In soul, make him a mouth and spit in it. Learn the only boy worth trusting is your rabbi. Um, and just before I get off, um, I'm going to be donating some of my winnings uh, to the Library Critics Scheme. Um, they're doing incredible things. Uh, established by Sandeep, um, the inaugural winner. Um, they're doing incredible things um, to increase diversity 
in reviewing and in poetry um, and uh, yeah and, and, and get to know their work if you don't already um, thank you so much thank you, thank you.